This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to The Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Kettle One Botanical. I love a good bar cart. My husband has joked that I'm just as likely to order a bar cart as I am a drink. And this summer, the Goop team is putting together a dream bar cart in a couple of our pop-up shops in Nantucket and Sag Harbor. I'll tell you more about those later, but the hero of the bar cart is really Kettle One Botanical. Kettle One Botanical is vodka distilled with real botanicals. What sets it apart is that there's no sugar and no artificial flavors or sweeteners. Kettle One Botanical comes in three varietals, cucumber and mint, grapefruit and rose, and peach and orange blossom, and they all make for fresh tasting summer cocktails. For recipe ideas, head to goop.com, and to order Kettle One Botanical now, head to dryzly.com. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected, and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive, on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Krista Tippett is a Peabody Award-winning broadcaster, New York Times bestselling author, and a National Humanities Medalist. Barack Obama gave it to her. Krista is also the founder and CEO of The On Being Project, a public radio show and podcast that asks some of the most important questions in life, like what does it mean to be human, and how do we want to live? Krista and I sat down and talked about her journey between religion, spiritual curiosity, and politics. We talked about the importance of rituals and remembering to incorporate rest and play into our lives. And we talked about more of those big life questions. We focus on our dysfunction. We're so sophisticated about focusing on what's going wrong and what is dysfunctional and what is failing and catastrophic. And you know, that's how I started out as a journalist. And it's just not, it's part of the story of us, and it's, and it's not the whole story of us. And I, from where I sit, I see such an abundance of beauty and goodness, and I see what we're capable of when we rise to our best. Let's get right into my conversation with Krista Tippett. You know, you're always sort of whispering in my ear when I'm walking, <laughs> and I... I on being is so 
powerful and is such a must-listen podcast, especially for our audience, anybody who is interested in wellness, mind, body, soul, spirit, integration. I mean, you are the definitive podcast and thinker on this stuff. For people who might not know, I would love for you to just talk a little bit about your your background and how you how and when you decided to create on being. Okay. Well, it's such a pleasure to be here and to be sitting across from you. Yeah. I mean, it's a long story, but I feel like one of the interesting things about this project is that it feels like it brings together all these disparate parts of myself. So I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, which actually feels really important to me doing the show in this moment because I have some roots in in different parts of the country which feel at odds, right? And I have a sense of the humanity out there all across our country. So I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, but kind of fled for my life, uh, went east, went to Europe, had grown up very religious, you know, going to church three times a week, Southern Baptist, but, and then got captured by politics and didn't really think about the spiritual or religious aspect of life for a good 10 years, but was really captivated by Cold War politics. This was the 1980s, another world ago. But I, got, I, ended, I walked into some really powerful places. I walked into working, swinging for the New York Times in Divided Berlin and into working as a chief aide to our ambassador who was a nuclear arms expert, moving these missiles around on a map of Europe. And so I, at a young age, I got really close to true power on this geopolitical scale, but there was something deeply confusing to me about that because I was also just observing how people in that divided Berlin, which was just such an incredible kind of social experiment of splitting one people into two competing political, economic, social systems. It sounds like America. It's, right? <laughs> it sounds like America right now, it does. But, and what I saw is that you could land on the western side of that wall or you could land on the eastern side of that wall, and still there was this work to do in every life to create beauty and dignity and intimacy. And that was not dependent on, you know, you people did that with the raw materials they were handed. And it wasn't dependent on you know, whether you had everything or didn't have everything, it is this work to do. So, you know, long story short, at some point I, I realized that that's, that, and that that's power too, that's mm -hmm. a power in our world that's quiet, mm -hmm. but is actually about life and death, kind of with a capital L and a capital D, where, where those missiles were about something else. And, you know, that led me to go to divinity school as a place to ask these questions. And then came, but I came out of that with the eyes of a journalist and really felt like we, there was this huge void where, and this is kind of a late 90s, early 2000s, but I think this is still true. It's shifting. But we don't know how to talk about actually some of the things we most long to talk about. And this entire aspect of ourselves that it has all these words attached but, you know, this religious, spiritual, ethical, moral side of ourselves, we, we have a really impoverished vocabulary, and we, need, and we want to apply our intelligence to that, and we want to apply our creativity and imagination to that. So that's just kind of what got me fired up, and then walking down this road where I had to fight pretty hard for this for many years. But here we are in 2019, and it feels like the right thing to be doing. Yeah. And what's so interesting, too, is that you're sort of a living example of kind of amalgamating these almost fundamental, right? You went to church three times a week, mm -hmm. and even though there's like this fundamentalism in that, it's a tr connection to God that you're experiencing yeah. all the time, but it's coming yeah. with certain ascribed values or whatever, right? And then you're going off into the world and having real-world wor experiences of what it means to bring two sides of something together, yes. or how to apply intelligence to spirituality, or maybe intelligence is the wrong word, sort of self-awareness to Yeah, and the life of the mind, I think, belongs to this too. Right? So it's what is that next evolution of religion? Hmm. I think so much about what an incredible moment we live in, where in the West, and certainly in this country, in a very short span of time, you know, we've gone from most people 
inheriting religious identity like they inherited eye color and hometown. Right. And But in this very short span of time, that has just completely fallen away. And I think that is unsettling. I think that I think the, the situation we're in of crafting our spiritual lives out of nothing, with no formation, and, and I mean, even nothing to reject. Right. Because previously, you know, people, we would, you also had something to work with that you were rejecting or accepting, but even that gave you something to to be work some raw materials. Right. So it's stressful and it's unnatural. It's also a remarkable thing that we are this generation mm-hmm. who are given to craft our spiritual lives. I, I, and I, what I see people doing and what I think will continue to happen is there's a freedom, there's a, there's a freedom to be questioning. I also think that these traditions have been these repositories across many generations of these, you know, conversations across generations about these questions of meaning, of rituals and practices and texts and teachings and elders, teachers. And so I I think it's now going to be this interesting convergence of of agency Mm -hmm. and of working not just with new practices, but with amazing new science that is teaching us what it means to be a whole human being. Right. And then also probably learning, probably honoring and delving into the traditions in a new way, but this time really with consciousness as a choice. What do you think those traditions do in terms of opening doors? Like, why do we always revert back to those to the traditions. Yeah. Well, if you think about I I have trouble separating religion and spirituality completely because the traditions have been containers, right? Yeah. For this aspect of us. They're these ancient containers. And and we need those and at the same time containers they, they are containers of our making in many ways, so they take on all human flaws and human failings, and we drop them and break them. But, but again, like the, you know, the, there's incredible intelligence about the body and what I think of as spiritual technologies that are part of these traditions. I mean, I think for me, meditation and prayer are spiritual technologies. Rituals are spiritual technologies, uh, virtues like hospitality. I've been spending a lot of time in Silicon Valley these last few months talking about, you know, how hospitality um, is this ancient religious, spiritual and social, but it's really a social technology for that, that we've developed in many cultures for inviting people to bring their best selves into mm-hmm. a room, whatever that room is. So there's incredible intelligence and wisdom, a lot of which is now being borne out by neuroscience and evolutionary biology. Right. That's what's so fascinating. Right? So that mm-hmm. so there's so I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by how even and especially in a moment where we are where these institutions are not at the center of society and may never be and probably never will be in the same way again. Which ones? Well, the, the religious institutions oh, right. in the in the way that they were even even 50 years ago, mm-hmm. even 30 years ago in this country. But much of what they've carried forward in time in, as containers is actually appearing wise in a new way. And why do you think we're at this moment in time where the idea of religion is sort of being rewritten or that we have the, the capability to sort of assess for each of ourselves? Like, what, what is my version of, of spirituality? Why is that happening now? One thing that... so. So it's been so interesting now to have been doing what I'm doing for, I would say, since the turn of the century, right, <laughs> for the whole century. <laughs> and it's been really amazing to be paying attention to this in this century. Because if you, you know, if you cast your mind back and, you know, in the early, early 21st century, we had an evangelical president in the White House. There were, there were the kind of, what did we call them? You know, the culture wars were religious wars. And, and really, I, I blame journalism as much as a few strident voices were kind of, you know, we, we handed them the microphones and, 
and and cameras. So you had you had a real strident religiosity that was part of the culture wars. You had an evangelical president in the White House. Then you had the immediate post 9/11 period where where Islam was already going to be the second largest religion in this country, but it was a, a catastrophic way for many people to be introduced to this religion of Islam and to religion alive in the world. And then we went through, so there was this kind of learning period. And then we went through the new atheist backlash, which I think was a reaction to all of the strident religiosity. And that sold a lot of books and, you know, was energizing in a way. And it's not that that's gone away, but what I've seen is then following that, more of a conversation that's kind of below the radar, including a conversation between religious religious insights and scientific frontiers. And at the same time, as we've had this, new, you know, brand new phenomenon of people growing up without any kind of deep religious identity formation. What I think is happening now is that this the new generations also don't have the baggage that their parents had, right? So 20 years ago, the, or th- the people who were having raising children were very intentionally not raising them with what they felt had gone wrong with religious institutions and religious belonging. But now you have this whole new world of people who have this very natural and deep spiritual curiosity, I think theological curiosity, really, you know, and, 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 with, without, and with this complete fresh openness to it, this sense of discovery. I mean, I think that's what you're, you're kind of walking into that and, mm-hmm. and, and speaking to that also. And do you think yeah. that there's also a cynicism there about an organized religion or... I'm trying to sort of understand the relationship between kind of all of the institutional ways that yeah. we've grown up as a culture. And then, because it, it does very much feel to me that in this generation, like I look at my children and we we sort of practice everything at home, but, you know, there's nothing specific. And and they are incredibly, as you describe, open, very into. I think they feel their souls with them all the and time. And children are little theologians. It's true. So do you think that, because in my experience, especially with my children's generation, there's no cynicism about... No, no, that's it. They're not, they have nothing to reject. They're wide open. They, they've gone back to, I think, what must have been a, a natural state of spiritual curiosity that human beings have always had. And they're not necessarily equating a spiritual search or a theological curiosity with with an institution. Now, what's interesting to me is I think when people go deep, they often they often end up turning to these, you know, these ancient practices. Our need for a ritual, which I, I just think like are, we are in, just at an animal level, we need mm-hmm. ritual. We we love it whether love it's, it. yeah. you know, going to church every Sunday or Thanksgiving dinner or yeah. you know, a glass of wine at the end of the day yes. or, you know, reading a poem before night or whatever yeah. it is, whatever. Yeah, and 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 these traditions are are the places in society that did that. This is where this was where where it happened, and it was much more at the center of life. So, so there's this interesting separation on the one hand from what that has from what religious belonging has always meant, and a kind of rediscovery of it. Sometimes I think about you know the monastic traditions in Christianity. I mean, now we have a pope who's a Jesuit, but the monastic traditions where there's a huge amount of variety, I mean, in the West, where, and, you know, where, where Christianity was the only game, but essentially the monastic traditions were these spiritual renewal movements that, that grew up on the edges of established religion, you know, literally went out into the desert. And often what they were, what they were responding to was a sense that the church had betrayed its own deepest heart, that there was something re, you know, absolutely profound and meaningful and essential about what, that, what gave, gave rise to that institution, but that it no longer was representing that in the world. And so that the monastics were these rebels who said, you know, 
I'm leaving, but not in order, but in order to bring you back to what you're supposed to be here for. And I kind of feel like in the 21st century, there's this movement which now is across many traditions and cultures, but that this, I think like that your children, that this new emerging seriousness, because it's, you know, it's not flaky, right? It's not superficial, it's serious. This reclaiming of what this is meant to be in our lives and in our life together, that it's, it's our version of monastic, the monastic impulse. Right. And so what are the tools to, I mean, to, for me, like that kind of monastic approach means restriction. It means lack of reactivity. It means, you know, to sort of separate yourself. That's what comes to mind for you when you, when you think of that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so you think of it as restriction. I think, of, but not in a, not in a negative way. No, I think but of, you probably think of celibacy and. Well, sort of using restriction to create right. space and opportunity for expansion. Yeah. And kind of separating from that very human ego-driven need to sort of fulfill ourselves and distract yes. ourselves and just to sort of strip away and strip away and strip away and see what lies there and, and how you you can go deeper. Yeah. And I think that that is in that tradition. It, it's very, you know, it was very countercultural. And right, actually... more punk rock. Yeah. Right. But in our, for us, in this generation, you know, even to ask the question, which I feel societally we have to start to ask in our most powerful places, of just the question of, how much is enough? You know, not even just, not even starting with restriction or withholding or what you're not doing, but just how much is enough? Right. You mean from a sort of... Well, even, I don't know, um, consumer, consuming, how big does a company have to be? You know, how much money is enough in so many contexts? What do you think drives that impulse in human beings? To ask that question or to... Or to not to, to, to not have a sense of okay, this is yeah. enough. Well, I we're so complicated and strange <laughs> <laughs> is one answer. Right. I do not to be too simplistic about it, but I do we are all each of us, whoever we are, whatever we do, we want a sense that that our lives matter, that it adds up to something. And that can mean, that can, that can take so many different expressions. But culturally, we have so overemphasized what matters in terms of what we can measure in terms of really monetary value. Right. You know? Like quantifiable, yes, quantifiable. measures of what we are yes. worth. Yes. And you don't have to demonize money or or visibility to say there are also other things to measure. Right? Yeah, which are what? The quality of your friendships. Whether you again I've been thinking about this a lot being in Silicon Valley. I mean, however exciting and meaningful your professional life is, you know, do you know how to rest? Do you know how to play? And I mean really play. Because right, we, even Americans, we do this, there's this, uh, the, you know, I think the, the definition of play is apparently, you know, apparently purposeless activity. Right. And Americans there's no competition. are really good at purposefully right, playing, right, where which is right. not the same. And, and So how do you play? Like, what, how do we play? As an adult? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it looks a lot less wild than it did when I was 25, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, for me, well, I, I mean, things like just... At this point in my life, it's it's actually because I do work. I work really hard and yeah. I travel a lot. But it's 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 just days where all I do is read and talk to friends and you know cooking. Actually, when I started doing yoga, which now is about ten years ago, and now I'm pretty good at it. But when I started yoga, and I was in my mid forties, what kind of yoga? I started. I do core power yoga. I love which core I power love yoga. So much. Yeah, and it's just <laughs> such an important part of my life. I'm with you. Yeah, and you know, it's pretty. 
It's pretty rigorous. Yeah. Do you and do the ones with the weights? No, I, ha- I don't do sculpts. I love that one. Yeah, I do kettle. But oh, I do kettlebells, which has also been a way that I play. Have you ever done kettlebells? I, what I love about it is they're that it, so strange. It feels like playing because I'm just, just swinging. I don't things know around. what's going on with kettlebells. Uh, yeah. I tried once and I was so unruly. Well, I got I got somebody to train me because I realized that every time because I was trying out all these different strength activities. And which is important for yeah, women as is. we age, especially. And I especially. knew it was really important. And I also knew that I felt better doing it. But I just, I don't know, for me, going to the gym and doing all these machines, just, <laughs> you know, it just felt like a chore. And but I realized, and I tried, and I tried some kind of CrossFit stuff, and then. I realized that well, that the exercises I always enjoyed were the kettlebell exercises. So I, I got somebody to train me. And one thing that I love about it is that it does feel like playing. But oh, So what I was going to say, when I started doing yoga and doing this rigorous yoga, I was really bad at it. You know, I mean, because it, in, in core power, you're, you're moving. It, it's the... You, it's getting the alignment right. It's getting the postures, and it's the transitions between the postures, and that just takes time. But I was really aware of how great it was for me to be doing something that you weren't I wasn't great at, good at, <laughs> right. and might never be good at. I mean, really, at that point, I thought I may always be struggling, but I'm doing it because it feels so wonderful. Yeah, and it's those exercises in humility are amazing for us, I think. You know, I think we, especially in America, we're, as you say, we're so results-oriented. And we do very few things that we don't think we're good at or that exhibit, you know, where we have to exhibit vulnerability or weakness. Like, we're not good at that. Yeah, and I think we... And I think we're teaching also young people to restrict themselves to things where they have mastery. Right. And yes, then you that's become true. impoverished with how much you're not doing just because it might be enjoyable. That's true. I yes. Where do you do you think that as an adult that where do you think sexuality or sex plays into the sort of play philosophy? Oh. Yeah. I mean, that also shifts so much. All of this shifts across the lifespan. And another amazing thing about living right now is that, I mean, I'm 58. You are? Yeah. And for all of you at home, honestly, I thought you were younger than I am. I'm 46. Oh, come on. I'm not kidding. (laughs) No. No, but, but just think about even... 10 years ago, 58 was different than it is now, right? Or 46, right? So we're going to live a long time and can potentially be, I mean, you know, and we're all going to die at some point too. That's important to know. We are? (laughs) We are all going to die. Fuck. Yes, being alive is a fatal condition. (laughs) But, oh yeah, so, yes, that's kind of interesting to me at this stage in life is, you know, all of these things that make life enjoyable, even something like friendship or, yeah, sexuality, you have all these new chapters. And I think I was actually, this is not the answer you were looking for, but I was, I just spent a couple of months up at Stanford and I was in this gathering where there were a bunch of 20 year olds talking about, you know, it was all about finding the one. And it was this, the scenario was that if you didn't find the one, then you were forever alone. And I I said to them, you know, one thing that's great about living longer is you realize there's so many ways to not be alone. And there's so many forms of love in our lives. And that doesn't mean you stop being sexual. But I think you get released a bit. Also, you have your kids, right? Yeah. And there's this animal thing in us that has to mate and reproduce. And, and it's amazing and life-giving. But it's also a beautiful thing to be on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. And yes, and I think in a way, this the sexual aspect of it just gets to be, then is just playful. And it's also not as urgently at the center of, of, of your, you know, just your sense of whether your life is complete. Right. Which is also relaxing. What do you think that story is that we're all inculcated with somehow that there is one... Ugh. 
my son, my son is 20, and he said to me, oh, he said, he, yeah, he broke up with his girlfriend. And so he says, I, I broke up with her. I just realized she's not the one. And I said, Sebastian, there is no one. <laughs> Have I taught you that? I don't understand how we I don't all know. Feel I think that it way. must be an evolution, an old evolutionary thing. I mean, there's definitely a person that you have children with. Like that is a exactly. choice. Exactly. But exactly. then it doesn't mean that that's your. I mean, no. I I always remember Margaret Mead talking about having mm. different yes. partners and different that you, chapters. That you would have three marriages, even yes. if it was the same person. Right. Yeah, and I think, and I know you've t- you've talked a lot about this. You know, my, so I've been divorced a long time and I, but I never call my, I never, I never call Michael my ex-husband. I say, he's my children's father. Yeah. That's a forever role in my life. And I don't regret, I couldn't, I couldn't regret that marriage because we made these humans. I know. Right? And, and yet we go on and, and yeah. And I don't, there's not a one. Maybe there's, maybe there are a few ones. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I also think it's limiting. And then it's also another way that we think that we've failed. Yeah. You know, either we met the one and then we didn't stay with the one or we didn't find the one and, or that we, you know, there isn't one person who's somehow fulfilling every single need that we. Which is so nuts. The whole kind of nuclear family thing also is so new and invented and Yeah, it used to be like a village of people raising families, right? I think it's not just that it takes a village to raise a child, but that that marriages also traditionally were held in a web of friendships and extended family. And of course, there can be a terrible downside to that if it's not a good marriage. But I think people were, this idea of, you know, two people and a couple of kids off over here making a life is just not is not natural it's not good for us what do you think is good for us what's the paradigm that well we're not we're obviously not going to go back to everybody being living in the neighborhood of our families have lived in for generations and having all the grandparents and cousins you know next door but I think what people are doing, what I think I know what I'm doing is, you know, we're kind of recreating extended family with chosen family. And I know I made a big effort in my with my kids to surround them with other adults mm-hmm. who would be their friends when when I wasn't the person who they would want to, you know, be their friend, but knowing that there would be other other people they could call or or fall back on and also look up to. Yeah, so important. Right, that. and mm-hmm. so that's a way of recreating, I think, what was the upside of Extended. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, You know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Family. And now let's take a short break. This summer, Goop is popping up all over the country and in some other countries too. I went to London for our first In Goop Health Wellness Summit in the UK. And in addition to our permanent Goop Lab store in Notting Hill, we opened a pop-up shop inside Harvey Nichols in London, which I was very excited to see myself. 
and our seasonal summer pop-up shops are in full swing in Toronto, Nantucket, and Sag Harbor. At Goop, we spend a lot of time thinking about the brick and mortar experience and how to build shops that can also serve as spaces for people to come together and explore ideas in addition to products. So we host a lot of conversations, workshops, and Q&As in our store, and we also have cocktails because that's how Goop rolls. In our Nantucket and Sag Harbor pop-ups, we teamed up with our friends at Cattle One Botanicals to put together the ultimate summer bar cart. It's designed by Chris Earle, who hand makes all his pieces in Los Angeles. And we've styled the carts with diamond cut crystal glasses by Richard Brendan and glassware from our Goop CB2 collaboration. And it's stocked, of course, with Kettle One Botanical. Kettle One Botanical is vodka distilled with real botanicals made with non-GMO grain. There's no sugar and no artificial sweeteners or flavors. Kettle One Botanical comes in three varietals, cucumber and mint, grapefruit and rose, and peach and orange blossom. They make for the goopiest, (laughs) freshest tasting cocktails. You can mix with Fever Tree Club Soda for a botanical spritz, or if you're looking for some custom cocktail ideas, you can find those on goop.com. But back to our bar cart. If you happen to be in Nantucket or Sag Harbor this summer, please come by. We'll be serving cocktails at select events throughout the season. And we'll have iPads on hand so you can easily order Kettle One Botanical from drizzly.com. But if you need a cocktail before then, just head to drizly.com and order your own Kettle One Botanical. Back to my chat with Krista Tippett. How important do you think, especially in this age of technology, when in a way it's so incredibly isolating, you know, for children especially, how important is that family structure and what is the right amount of sort of pulling them into it? I have two teenage children. Oh, your children are teenagers. Yeah. And I wrestle, I think, with, it's really, it's really challenging to be a parent in an era of emerging technology all, I know. all the well, time. Well, you're also right. I mean, this there's this generation of both parents and children who really have been guinea pigs, right? Right. I mean, this all landed, and you, there it was. And I didn't grow up with it, and they no. never grew up without it. So I don't know. Yeah, see, my with my kids, it was coming along, and so there was still, there was still, it was possible, so with my daughter who's 26, it was possible to say, no, you can't have a phone until you're 15 or something, right. which which I know is just not the world that was there not 10 years no. later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it is a challenge of this. One thing that I think is so important to remember is that these technologies are in their infancy. They're so powerful. They've taken over our lives but we're still the adults in the room. I, and I just mean all of us. I mean, even our, even the 13-year-olds. And so, you know, I feel like we, we just let them land on us. And now there's this realization of the downside, the, the damaging side, the dangers. And, and I do think that, you know, your kids and my kids are, are going to even just have instincts and, the way the way for a few generations we've talked about work life balance it's going to be now the life technology <laughs> balance, balance. Right. yeah yeah and they're they're doing it right they are they um, are they are finding ways to create boundaries because they just know they need it and then but but we do have to be aware that everybody won't have yeah, these technologies are addictive right and so so some people will I, I think it's important that we get really supportive as as the adults in their lives. And that also means that we get a handle on how we interact with our technology around them. But there's also this kind of breaking down of everything in a way, like it's democratized everything. Yes. So do you think there's a correlation with that and what you were talking about in the beginning in terms of this sort of white space to create a version of spirituality? Yes. Yes. I... I actually I think that what we're living through is like the reformation but it's the reformation of everything. It's not just about questioning 
established religion. It's wreaking havoc and also creating a lot of, uh, it's making creative space for new forms in every, right? It's such a, isn't it an amazing time to be alive? Yes. Feels to me like just in the last five years, institutions that basically made sense, you know, you thought, sure, we can, they can get better. You know, what a school is, what a prison is, what an economy is, how politics work, what they're for, medical care. None of it, none of those forms that we got from the 20th century make sense anymore. And it's partly because we're evolving and learning, but I think you're absolutely right that the, that the digital revolution has been the undoing of it all. Yeah, it's funny. It's like, in a way, the internet age is all about disintermediating existing industry and how it works, yeah. right? And yeah. so it's like, what is the disintermediation of the culture or spirituality that it brings to? It's sort of weird to think about. Yeah, and... It feels, it's important, I think, that we actually step back every once in a while and take this in and realize that it's very, like, it's beautiful and it's really stressful for human beings to have, because literally the ground beneath our feet is shifting. And that is at the heart of some of the incredible turmoil and division, you know, in our country politically. And we all have our own personal versions of this going on. I think there's a, I actually think it, it, it sounds kind of, it sounds really modest and it is modest, but I feel like if we could all just take this in every once in a while, and also things like we're the generation that's redefining family and marriage and gender, these huge seismic shifts that are happening that are just remarkable, that we, we, it would be great if we could just extend a little kindness and softness to ourselves and to others, understanding that for human creatures, you know, change brings stress. And what we're living through, even if we didn't have all this political turmoil, right, we're still living through this, this moment of like tectonic shifts in just about every institution. And so, and I think the more we can actually focus on that and attend to that mm -hmm. and take that in, then, then we can. Then that's going to be a much. That's going to be much more solid ground to yeah. kind of build the, build those new realities. Like make those new forms. Right from a place of openness and softness. And, and softness. If you were going to teach a class on this, I'm really fascinated by this idea that you've brought up of this sort of tabula rasa in spirit in modern spirituality. Mm, mm. If you were going to teach a class on that, what would be sort of the framework that you would teach for how to be a modern hmm. spiritual person? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> person? My daughter, when she was about your daughter's age, once said to me, Mom, it's so good that you're not a teacher. You would be a terrible <laughs> teacher. <laughs> so one of the reasons I started the show all those years ago was because I had gone to divinity school right. to try to, because partly because I had not taken any of this seriously. And I was shocked to find myself taking it seriously. And I needed to test that. And I needed to, it needed to be rigorous. And I needed to know who were the teachers across the ages. And what I, and it was, a, it was absolutely more exhilarating than I thought it would be. But it was like this whole aspect of the human enterprise opened up, which is, you know, the theological, philosophical quest and the lineage of that and the ideas and the questions mm -hmm. in that part of the lineage. And I came out of it feeling like I shouldn't have had to give up three years of my life and go to divinity school and get into the kind of debt I got into <laughs> to be introduced to that part of the human enterprise. Right. So... And I think one of the great things that's happening now is that in many forms and in many places, in books and online and, and in convenings, people are reclaiming these teachings, these, these traditions, these questions, the rituals. You know, you're, you're doing that. You're part of that. So I would, you know, I would say, I mean, I, I think I would start by saying, you know, you are 
a theologian, right? These questions are available to you. And human beings have always worked out their spiritual and moral and religious lives with the raw materials mm. they were handed. Right. And so, you know, your life as a parent is your teacher. Yes, certainly. Absolutely, as much as anything else. Oh, certainly, you know, all, all Or an intimate relationship. All of your friendships, yeah. yeah, are teachers. One of the most strange aspects of us is how we, you know, and one element of spiritual life is loss yeah. and failure. Yep. We have tried to raise ourselves with this illusion, and we're you know we're kind of formed to raise our kids to succeed, right? As we we're talking about, and yeah. be, and towards mastery, and and yet there's something in us that needs to kind of hit bottom mm. for the ground to fall out from beneath our feet. The the things that we flee, loss and illness, and 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 what we what we most long for, not not working out. Mm. Those are moments of where we where strangely we we tap into the part of ourselves that that learns and grows spiritually yeah so i think but and i think that that's not to say go out there and you know <laughs> make mistakes on purpose it's just it's just say no but i think it's honor to, right, yeah like, and don't treat what goes wrong as moments to deepen because i think our instinct is to be pain averse yes and to find ways to distract ourselves mm -hmm. from the or pain move on to the next thing and that to, that's been one of my biggest lessons honestly is to realize the value of pain and yeah. and failure and yeah. obstacles and mistakes yeah. and to be able to sit with those and hold them and then see what comes from there mm -hmm. well i suppose then my last question would have to be, it's going to be a two-part last okay. question. What was it like to, I'll try not to cry, talk to Mary Oliver? Oh, yeah. I mean, I never met her or anything, but she had such a mm -hmm. profound impact on my life. And that was such an amazing... Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, what is that like? Well, what I want to tell you is that so could you tell that she smoked the whole time? No. Okay. <laughs> and now I love her okay. even more. I know. That's it. Oh, you're kidding. That's it. Oh, my God. She was, you know, people, I, I think people had her on a pedestal, at, or she also got a lot of flack for being too accessible. And what I know, what I what I, what I saw when I sat with her, her is how hard one her delight in life had been, right? Oh, she was a survivor. She went out into the woods, growing up in a terrible, terrible house. Yeah. And she saved herself and was saved by the beauty of the natural world. And yeah, she smoked. So I was, I was, uh, I was heading to her house because we had to, you know, we had to go to her, and it was amazing. And she hardly did interviews. And my producer texted me on the way, and she said she wants to smoke. Are you okay with that? I'm like, of course I'm okay with that. I'm not going to say no. I won't do it. But you know, she was taking deep tracks I just the whole she time. Was, she was I a didn't... fully realized, embodied human. And I think what I understood is that that just exactly to where we were a minute ago, what she survived and the pain she walked through and walked with, right? Yes. That's the other thing. We think we have to defeat pain and yeah. suffering, but it's how do we integrate that into the wholeness we have on the other side? And she had done that. And that, I think, gave every beautiful word she wrote this incredible gravitas yeah. that communicated itself, right? Without you having to know that story. And she was wearing a New England Patriots sweatshirt. Oh, my husband will be very happy <laughs> about that. No, it was it was so unexpected and beautiful. Because I also know because I've I've done enough of this studying and, and I've met a, you know, I've met some other 
amazing people like Desmond Tutu and people like that, but saint, none of the saints are saints. No. They are all we're it, we're fully, humans, right? Yeah, they are fully embodied. Right. They, have, they have wrestled with darkness in themselves as much as they've wrestled with darkness in the world. And mm. they've integrated that. Like they've brought that into their gift to the world. And that was just... Mm. You know, I've never seen that more on display than I did with Mary Oliver. Who's been your favorite interview? All I never, time? I can't, I never Impossible. can answer that question. I always say it's the last person I interview. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so how about this one? If if our listeners haven't heard on being yet, what episode do you think they should start with? They should probably start with the John O'Donohue episode, which I think the title of is "The Inner Landscape of Beauty." There's something about that interview that I, people just seem to carry it around with them. And yeah. people have told me that they, you know, that it got them through the hardest moment. There are people who listen once a month or once a year or every day while they're going through something. Yeah. And he also, he had died right before we put it on the air. Yeah. There was something, there's something magical in that also about his presence still being alive in the world. Mm-hmm. That's you know, that's resurrection by radio is what I call it. Okay, I swear this is my last question. But with all of this amazing work that you're doing, you're teaching us all so much and connecting us all so much with your books, your podcast, everything. If you had to define your mission, like why are you doing all of this? We focus on our dysfunction. We're so sophisticated about focusing on what's going wrong and what is dysfunctional and what is failing and catastrophic. And you know, that's how I started out as a journalist. And it's just not, it's part of the story of us and it's, and it's not the whole story of us. And I, from where I sit, I see such an abundance of beauty and goodness and I see what we're capable of when we rise to our best. And, and I think that when we do that, we do turn to these resources and this capacity we have for more than, yeah, what we've been talking about, more than mastery and more than acquisition, where, where we have social courage and moral imagination and, and spiritual searching and, yeah, and spiritual imagination. And, and, and so I think that our technologies, with all of their with all their problems, have also given us this capacity to, to think and act as a species, mm. you know, just audaciously stated. So I am doing this little tiny piece, my little tiny part, to nourish that, right? To nourish what we are capable of and what we can become in the most, in the most beautiful sense. Thanks for listening to my chat with Krista Tippett. You can learn more about her work, show, and books at onbeing.org. And I promise you'll never be bored again. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And I hope you'll come back next week on Tuesday and Thursday. My chief content officer, Elise Lunin, is interviewing a couple more brilliant guests. Don't miss it. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.